to the very first Coffee and Conversation. I want to start off by giving a shout out really to all our health workers and first responders uh, in this current environment. Awesome job, guys. Well, I'd like to thank you all for spending your first cup of coffee or four. Uh, I think I'm actually on number five now. Uh, we decided to put this call together, not just out of necessity, but in order to bring people and new ideas together. So, quick intro time. My name's Ian Machin. I'm the CEO and founder of Ludian LLC, a transportation consultancy based in Southern Nevada. The roundtable participants include myself and two fellow industry experts, Dan Langford, mobility technology consultant, and Chris Barker, the founder of CBC Transportation Consultancy, who is also today's moderator. And my marketing manager, Zachary Zolowicz, who will be assisting taking questions uh, in the background and he'll, he'll raise those to us. With that out of the way, I want to wish you well in the current environment. I'll now hand this over to Chris, who's our moderator for today, and our special guest. Let's get this conversation started. Thanks, Ian. Good morning. Uh, and thank you for joining our Coffee and Conversation, our first one. Uh, I'm Chris Parker, uh, founder of CBC Transportation Consultancy, and um, honored to be today's uh, moderator for our discussion. Uh, our goal with these calls today and going forward is to introduce important topics around innovation and technology and transportation. Uh, we certainly want this to be more of a interactive dialogue, less than not a presentation. Um, that said, uh, I'd like to introduce my colleague, uh, Dan Langford, Mobility Technology Consultant. Morning, Dan. Good morning. Uh, also, our featured guest this morning is Paul Comfort. Paul is the Vice President of Business Development at Trapeze Group. Uh, many of you also will know Paul as the former CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration. And he's the author of a new book titled The Future of Transportation. Paul, welcome. And thank you for joining our coffee chat. It's good to have you this morning. Thank you very much. I'm here protected and COVID free so far. <laughs> Love the mask. Yeah. So Paul, you, uh, you recently published this book titled The Future of Public Transportation. I can imagine that you never would have thought that you would have published a book with this current uh, COVID-19 backdrop. Uh, what are your thoughts about just the environment that we're operating in right now? Thanks, Chris. So um, it's unprecedented, obviously, right? Uh, everyone I've talked to, nobody remembers it. You know, I'm in my early 50s and it's been nothing like this. Uh, and we were just talking in the green room before we went on the air about, um, you know, how the messaging right now is going to have to be reversed in a month or two. Right now, there's, uh, there's, I was just showing you, there's, there's signs up right now across the transit agencies across the world that are like that, which say, are you an essential rider? Yes, get on. If not, no, go home. We've never been in a place where we're telling people don't ride public transit. But that's the messaging now, right or wrong. That's what we're hearing from politicians. And um, as a result of that, and as a result of the lockdown that they've put us on, uh, ridership is down 50 to 90% on public transit across North America. Commuter services have the biggest decline because these are white collar workers who live in the suburbs, who've been coming into the cities like on my old Mark train service in, in uh, Washington, D.C. that would come down from Western Maryland and Eastern Maryland down into Washington, D.C. People ride an hour and a half one way. 
And um, now those services are down literally 80 to 90%. Long Island Railroad reported 90% reduction. And so they've reduced service dramatically. Regular bus service is down about 50 to 60%. A lot of services have been reduced accordingly to match the demand. And now that's having a rebound effect. Some services have reduced so many vehicles that they're now shoulder to shoulder in the bus again. And people are saying, wait a minute. You know, the goal is to get a little social distancing here. Some services have put up, you know, X marks a spot and they blocked off the front of the bus uh, so that people can't get to the front of the bus. I'll give you an example of that right there. That's, a, that's one of the bus services recently that, uh, that, you know, blocked off the front. So people are riding from the rear door and that's caused a whole new phenomenon which is people aren't having to pay the fare to ride the bus anymore. A lot of systems have gone fare free or they're not enforcing the fares because people are entering the rear door and there's no fare box there. Some of them have a validator uh, for smart cards, et cetera, and for tap and go credit cards, but it's a whole new era now. And transit systems, um, some great smart CEOs have come up with some great ideas and how they're responding to this to keep their drivers safe, to make sure they have enough uh, personal protective equipment, to keep social distancing on the bus by saying one person per each row, to clean the buses at night more thoroughly. Some people are even cleaning them at the end of each run. When they go back and forth at the end of the line, there's cleaners there to wipe down all the high touch surfaces with, you know, hospital grade disinfectant. And um, so it is, um, it's uncharted territory. And you're right. When I wrote the book, The Future Public Transportation, little did I know, it went to number one on Amazon for two weeks for transportation books. And right around then, this whole new phenomenon came in. However, the good thing is the book is kind of future proof. The things I'm talking about on there actually might be even more important now as we try to pull out of this um, coronavirus shutdown that the government has put us on in a month or two. And, and Paul, you talked about social distancing. Uh, what, in your opinion, is, gonna, is it going to take to get people comfortable with returning to a setting where we're sharing transportation services again, uh, whether it be car share, uh, light rail, bus? I mean, you've mentioned a few steps, but it, there's a, probably going to be a pretty big psychological element here to get people to the point where they feel comfortable returning to those modes. What, what do you think is going to take to make that possible? Good question. I just wrote an article about that for that'll be published in uh, this coming month's Metro Magazine, uh, and it's the, the five long-term implications of the coronavirus pandemic on public transit. And the first implication is uh, what I believe will be the death of the fare box. And so I explained that. I actually put a post on my LinkedIn page yesterday a little bit about that, as people realize they can go like London, right? Hey, I don't need I don't need cash, so I don't need a fare box. I can do validators. Some people will stay fare free. One of the other big implications will be, as you mentioned, how do we get people back on the bus? So there's two real services, right? So there's six main modes of public transportation in America right now. There's public bus, there's light rail, uh, there is um, subway systems. And uh, along those lines, you could also add in BRT, uh, bus rapid transit, which is, a, which is a type of bus service. Then you have commuter train, commuter bus, and paratransit. So six main modes. I ran all six when I was CEO of Baltimore. Uh, which was the 11th largest transit system in America. And so the different modes of transportation have different types of riders. What do I mean by that? So we did a survey when I was in Baltimore. Uh, we did a survey every two or three years of our riders. And the people that were riding the commuter trains and my 350 commuter buses um, had an average salary of six figures. They were people that were making over $100,000. We did a survey on the socioeconomic status of people riding the bus, the light rail, and the subway in downtown Baltimore and it was um, sub-poverty levels. And so two completely different audiences riding 
these two transit services. As I mentioned, the commuter bus services are down the most because of the white collar workers that use these, the predominantly white collar workers. I figured out that I can work from home just like we're doing right now uh, and I can work remotely. I have a feeling that that is going to linger a little bit longer than on the regular public bus service. People who are um, figured out that, hey, you know, I actually can get a lot more done in four or five hours at home than I can in eight hours in the office because it's not all this back and forth talk at the water cooler, so to speak, you know, the metaphorical water cooler, which nobody has anymore. Um, so, uh, so, but I think there'll be a lagging, uh, it, that'll be a lagging indicator. It's going to be hard to get some of them to, they're not going to want to go back to the office five days a week, right? And businesses are going to realize, I don't need to rent all this floor space. We can do shared office space. We'll bring people in for in-face meetings once or twice a week. But a lot of folks can continue to do their work from home and use Zoom or Microsoft Teams, et cetera, and work from home. And it's a long drive for people on commuter services. They're going an hour to an hour and a half. In addition, you know, with fuel costs as low as they are now, some people may decide they want to drive in, although I don't think that'll be the long distance commuters. So all that to say, I think commuter services will take a little bit longer to rebound. That's unfortunate because they were actually leading the country in the rate of increase. So last year in the, in the fourth quarter, commuter train service was up 5% over the year before. It was the, 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 the biggest increase of any of the six modes. Uh, on the regular bus service, light rail, subway systems, we've already seen this is an essential service. The people that are riding the service, I mean, even now, that, like that sign I showed you, don't ride unless you're, they're still half full um, mm -hmm. because the people that are riding are essential workers who do not have other access to mobility. So these are, you know, uh, the people that we consider essential right now, people that are working in the pharmacy stores and grocery stores, the clerks, the people that are working at Amazon, uh, at the post office, you know, um, first responders, uh, they all, a lot of those folks are the ones that are riding public transit. So one of the positive spins in this is that I think that um, our government has realized that transit's not just a nicety or it's not just, um, you know, for low income people to get the social services. No, it's an actual key component of our economic structure in the country and that mobility for people to get to their job, uh, these essential jobs that really make the wheels of our society turn round and round, not just on the bus, uh, that public transit has to be adequately funded and supported. And so that's why we got this big $25 billion stimulus bill, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. The federal government gave us 280% of our FY20 um, formula funds. And, I, and now they're talking about a fourth stimulus, which would be based on infrastructure, which a lot of that would be related to rail and public transit. So hopefully it's a new norm in Washington where the federal government for once will finally get it. We've crossed the Rubicon, like Europe has and other countries where they realize Public transit is a federal responsibility as well as a local responsibility. When it comes to uh, a lot of the funding that's required, it needs to come from a national level. It's not a nicety. It's not like uh, a cruise, which is a nice thing to have, you know. It's a necessity. It is a public necessity. Public transit is, mass transit is. It's the way that people get around in cities. So I think those folks will get back on the bus as long as we keep the buses clean and we keep the messaging correctly that, hey, this is not a Petri dish, like some politicians have said, and I say shame on them for saying that. Uh, this is a, we have long-term implications. I'm a politician, I can say that, right? A recovering one. Uh, we should not be telling people that. It's not necessarily the truth. We can wipe it down, we can keep it clean, just like you can go into a grocery store, just like you can go somewhere else. You can get on a bus, we can keep it safe. We are keeping it safe. There are a lot of problems still for, for some agencies who have not been able to respond quickly enough. But I think we're seeing that there are ways to do that. And I think once we get through this pandemic scare that we're in, uh, people will start returning to the bus. One last comment on that. Remember 
I remember 9-11, mm-hmm. right? We were all working. We all remember where we were at. Remember how after that, in the months that happened, we were all afraid to get on airplanes? Everyone was scared, right? Or, you know, it could, could be another terrorist attack. But you know what happened over time? Over a few months, some people got on the plane. Then a few more months, a few more people got on. And before you know it, the planes were full again. And, you know, like at the beginning quarter of this year was the best year the airlines have ever had uh, in, in capacity. I mean, they were having to add. I know I fly all the time. And there was, I'm always, you know, I'm getting stuck in the middle seat or getting places I don't want because there's so many people. There's no extra seats. So people got used to riding again, even after an existential threat like that occurred uh, to the airline industry. So I think the same thing will happen on transit. It'll be a little while, but people will get used to getting back on the bus again, especially if we do the messaging correctly and we keep our vehicles clean. Thanks, Paul. One question too, uh, what about vulnerable populations right now? Uh, You've got aging populations who are being recommended to not go out in the public and yet they often rely on public transportation as a method for, for moving around. What options do you think can help and assist those different groups at this time uh, in this current environment? In That's a back? great question. Nobody's asked me that yet. I've been on a lot of shows. That's a great question, Chris. I've, I've dedicated actually most of my career to working with people with disabilities and the elderly on transportation. I feel like they're the most vulnerable and they're the ones that need it the most. So we need to make sure it's good for them. So paratransit, I just got off a uh, call with the six CEOs of the largest paratransit providers in the nation just prior to this. This would be, you know, TransDev, First Transit, MV Transportation, Keolis, National Express, and RATP Dev. And we're talking about making sure that they keep their drivers uh, employed because paratransit services dropped dramatically too, like by 50% across the nation. And so uh, there's a couple things we can do to make sure that they stay safe, right? A lot of agencies have already decided that we're just going to push back to one person on the vehicle at a time. When we pick them up on an ADA paratransit vehicle, we're not going to go for shared rides right now. Other services have decided that they would, um, that they would uh, only allow services for essential service. They, they've actually reduced, they're not allowing people just to go anywhere anymore, which is, you know, I think it's a violation of the ADA law, the civil rights law, but, uh, but you know, that, that's another matter for another time. I know we're in extraordinary times right now. Uh, and so they're saying only essential services right now on our paratransit vehicles. Long-term, a lot of folks are realizing that, hey, you know what? It may not be the best solution in the future to have 75 reservationists crammed into one room right next to each other taking these calls. Like I used to run a call center in Washington, D.C. for WMATA for MV Transportation that did that. So they're going ahead and moving forward with purchasing, you know, online booking tools, or they may not, they may, may already have these online booking tools, but they haven't really publicized them, or they're going to the cell phone so people can book their trip there. And so they're using technology. People like Nat Ford in, uh, at JTA in Jacksonville have even started to use autonomous vehicles to transport the samples uh, of people who are at a mobile drive-through testing station. You could see that happening now, maybe with, um, the elderly or folks with disabilities who don't need a wheelchair uh, securement device where they can just get on their ambulatory. 75% of, or 70% of ADA clients actually are ambulatory. So we could have a vehicle go up to the house with no driver. So they actually would have no contact with anyone else in the vehicle. They would get on the vehicle, it would take them where they need to go, drop them off, and then have an assigned time to come back. Or they could push a button on their phone and say, I'm ready at the doctor's. And the vehicle comes back and gets them. So I think what's happening is, like we talked about the death of the fare box and the movement away from cash and into better technology, we're going to see people start utilizing the technology that's already there uh, in a much more meaningful way. Autonomous vehicles, 
uh, online booking tools, other technology tools that are allowing people to better manage their mobility experience, especially those with disabilities and the elderly. That's great. Uh, Ian, I think you had a question too about uh, COVID-19 impacts as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, Paul's covered a couple of them, but uh, you mentioned obviously, uh, you know, removal of the fare box, really about obviously, you know, contacting in the environment. So, uh, what you, do you have any thoughts on uh, how obviously this uh, current uh, issue we have with COVID-19 is going to create new ways we procure, ride and utilize transportation? New ways we procure. Um... I think you mentioned sort of like the, you know, the mobile phone and do you see any, any other advancements in that field? I do. Yeah. There's a lot of things happening. I mean, even, you know, there's even materials that can be used for bus seats that people that it's available right now, which is antibacterial. Um, and, uh, there's, there's materials that can be put on the stanchions, which is antibacterial. And that hasn't always been a priority for people when they're purchasing vehicles. So I think there's going to be more of an emphasis on that in the future. There's current technology in place to make our, the vehicles themselves safer and, um, and less of a quote Petri dish that some of the politicians have called us, which I'm still upset about. Um, yeah, so I think, not that, a nice thing to say, yeah. yeah, I think that people will start using that. I also think that there's going to be an even a faster move toward, um, it's a little bit of, off of what you're saying, but it, it's related, it's tangential. I don't know if anybody's seen this, the pictures on Twitter or whatever of the skyline of LA right now. It's blue. It's crystal clear. Oh, There's not smog there anymore. Yeah. And why? Because we're not cluttered with, with cars on the road. And so I think yeah. people are, are seeing the value of mass transit also to be a cleaner alternative. A lot of folks still have clean diesel out there, but there's a big push across North America for people to move towards zero emission buses. These are primarily like electric buses like Proterra, New Flyer, and some of these other companies Gillig have right now. Uh, some of those factories are shut down. My understanding is Proterra is still running um, you know, for the, during the COVID crisis, uh, but they're considered essential services right now. And so transportation is allowed to run as, as is the suppliers. Um, so I think we're going to see a push toward more electric buses, a push toward, you know, the CNG and the hydrogen that my friend Lawrence Skyver is kind of a champion of here in the U.S. Um, and so that's going to also be an outcome of this, is that we love the clean skies. Can we please keep them, even when we return? And the way to keep them is to get people on mass transit. You take 40 yeah. people out of their cars and put them in one bus, you've taken a lot of smog off the, off the, uh, out of the atmosphere. And so that's a long-term implication. And then, like you said, yeah, it's given us it's given us a, a a brief view into what the future could be if we yeah. change the transportation, our approach on transportation. That's right. And like my friend Chrissy Dittmore, who's on the line, I think now would tell you she's a champion of mobility as a service. Mass uh, yeah. is that this is also going to push people more toward using the electronic devices, right? One of the things that I'm not too sad about is that a lot of scooters have been pulled off the road over the last few weeks because people aren't riding the scooters downtown anymore. I've been almost run over by scooters a couple of times. I know they're a nice, they're a nice tool to have, but um, that's my personal opinion. Uh, but, uh, but I think people are going to look at uh, the mobility kind of as a um, holistic approach. It's not just riding the bus, right? It's not, it may be, I'm, I'm going to get an autonomous vehicle or, or a lift vehicle to come pick me at my house, take me to the light rail station where I'll ride downtown. And then I can ride a bike or a scooter the last few minutes to my office. And I can do it all with one push of a button on, a, on an app, a smartphone app, which will help me. That's why it's called mobility as a service. So I think we're going to see yeah. people doing that more as they come back into the um, re regular day-to-day -day economy. 
Thanks, Paul. Hey, we have some questions from the audience. I want to open up uh, the, the line for, uh, we have a question from uh, Glenn uh, Havanoski. Uh, Glenn, you want to go ahead and proceed? Okay. Um, so the question that I have is, uh, you, you've stated that uh, there's a likelihood that there's going to be an eliminating the, the use of cash for transit fare payment over time as more people have uh, different means of paying. The loud, it gives you a lot of freedom to get on uh, at the back door and validate your payment, et cetera. But there are a large number of bus riders, especially on local, local buses uh, and urban buses, that may not have checking accounts, uh, credit cards, or electronic uh, payment access. How do we address that? Great question, Glenn. I talk about that in my article that's going to be in the Metro Magazine. I think the way we address that is through the use of multi-use cards, right? In Baltimore, we call it our charm card. It's a, it's, a, it's a credit card looking device that you can top up with cash at a ticket vending machine or at a point of service uh, vendor. So, you know, um, most agencies now have point of service vendors at their local Wawa stores, 7-Elevens, convenience stores. So you can go in and you can actually put in a couple bucks and add it to your card. And then that becomes your tap and go. I mean, London did it five years ago. Uh, I was talking to Simon Reed, uh, who was a big wig there at TFL. And he said that when they introduced, you know, when they first introduced um, the Oyster card, which is their multi-use card, they got good usage. And then when Shashi Verma, their chief technology officer, got them on really the first in the Western world and a major system to move to tap and go credit cards where you can just tap your credit card, uh, that was the rest of the users. And they were less than 5% using cash at that point. And so they've been doing it successfully for five years. We have Title VI requirements here in the U.S., which require us to make sure we're serving the unbanked and low income. And I think a way to help do that is either to go to no fares or to go to make sure you keep your tap and go, I mean, your, um, your top up card or your multi-use card that can be topped up with value on the card with cash. Right, so that, that's been used a lot for rail. So you're saying that that's something that increasingly you'll see that on buses going forward. Yeah, most major transit systems have it on their bus service already uh, across America. You know, I work for a company called Trapeze Group, and we are the largest in the, the world when it comes to behind-the-scenes technology that kind of runs the back office. And, um, yeah, we're seeing that most, most major systems already have that for bus, but like you mentioned, it's not always used. So, for instance, when I got to Baltimore, I'm not kidding you, we had less than a 5% market penetration when it comes to people that were using our charm card. And then I found out why. It was only being sold in five places across all of Baltimore City. So we went to a massive uh, campaign and got 200 locations to start uh, selling these cards and topping them up. And, uh, and then we saw an increase of usage up to, I think, 30%. Um, when it comes to uh, people that were using the tap and go card, I mean, the uh, multi-use card in the system. Thanks. Sure, Glenn. Thanks. Great question. And I love that backdrop. Is that driving to uh, Key West? It looks like it. <laughs> that's, uh, no, that's actually the, the, the Bay. I think it's the Bay Bridge. Okay. All right. Well, that's where I want to be right now, driving to Key West. <laughs> From Miami, get me a convertible like that and drive to Key West. All right. Oh, what else, buddies? I want to make sure uh, my colleague Dan Langford has a chance to jump in. I think you, Dan, you've got a couple of questions as well. Yeah, I, was, I just wanted to uh, actually follow up on what you were just saying before a little bit, Paul, I think you're alluding to. It's kind of about consolidation in the industry. Um, it, you know, it sounds like you, you don't expect, you know, the, the drop in ridership to drag out too long and, and people start, you know, gradually getting back into it. Um, but do you, do you feel like it'll be long enough that, you know, there'll be some industry consolidation, both from a, a provider, you know, technology provider perspective, or maybe operators, 
um, or will it not? Or will it not drag out that long? And I guess the, the the other aspect of it that is consolidation again with regard to the services available. It sounds like this might be an opportunity for mass um, and different new options coming forward. Um, but but maybe uh, different jurisdictions will maybe reduce or expand their services. Or sorry, I'm asking a lot of questions in one, but I'll stop there. <laughs> sure, I think I get the gist of what you're saying. So um, yeah, I think that. Uh, first the first part of your question which is will technology providers um will some of this you know like scooters let's say right so several of the big scooter companies have already pulled their scooters thousands of scooters off the road in the last month uh, off the street corners of cities cluttering i mean uh, um on the on the street corners across the country and uh so i think there is going to be some consolidation in the industry right i mean this has been a massive fist on the economy, pushing it down with millions of people pushed out of their jobs uh, and um, folks not being downtown um, through this scare that's, that's come out, uh, this pandemic scare. And I'm not saying it's, re it's not real. I'm just saying that it's, it's caused a scare in the economy. It's, it's, it's frightened people. And so, um, so, yeah, I think there will be a consolidation in the industry. I know that a lot of private companies are, uh, that are vendors to uh, the industry have cut wages and cut salaries 20% are moving people to four day work weeks, furloughing people, laying people off. Um, and some companies won't survive this. Um, I think that they'll go out of business and they may have to regroup, uh, you know, and combine with someone else. The stock prices of a lot of companies have gone down dramatically and they are ripe for the picking. Uh, I've talked to some big investors over the last few weeks about that who are saying, you know, this is the time we want to buy because, the share price of this company has gone down in half. We'll never get an opportunity like this again. So we're going, we've got cash. We're going to spend it. So there's a lot of changes that are happening in the economy when it comes to the vendor community. I think we're going to see a reshuffling of companies. And uh, some of the smaller ones may be eaten up by larger ones, just like the banks have done, just like the airlines have done, just like a lot of companies have done when there's various um, hits to the economy. Uh, and, and then what was the second part of your question? Yeah, I guess the second part was more about the services and availability of different options. Um, I guess you kind of answered that as well with regard to the, the scooters being reduced to some extent. Um, but, but do you feel like that opens up an opportunity for different modes and methods to, to take their place? Yeah, not only that, but some cities now are closing down you know, the center part of the city on certain days and allowing people to walk. Have you seen that just recently? No. Uh, you know, it's, it's creating a walk, more walkable city, bikes, scooters, those kind of things, not, not, um, not motorized vehicles. I'm excited about that option. I mean, I love, I was in Europe this, this year several times, was able to get into the center city of a lot of cities like stock, like, uh, yeah, like Stockholm and like um, Glasgow, where they've got whole squares just closed off to traffic. It's, it's such a beautiful time to, to take advantage of that. And so I'm hoping we get more of that. And maybe they're just open to public transit vehicles. Yeah, um, it, it sounds like these blue skies are going to have a, a pretty big impact across the board. I was just reading this morning that uh, people can see the Himalayas now from like 30 miles out, which they haven't been able to do for many, wow. many generations. So uh, that's something. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get I don't want to get too metaphysical. But one of the positives, I always try to see the, uh, the glass half full. Right. So there is a concept called the year of Jubilee. Uh, in, the in the ancient nation of Israel. And uh, it was that once every 50 years, they pushed the reset button and debts were forgiven. Land went back to their original owners. Nobody worked the land that year. They just ate off what the land naturally provided. And um, it allowed kind of a refresh. And I almost see that happening now, right? It's a push, a pause of the, the frantic pace we were all on. 
Uh, and it's an opportunity for people to kind of reconnect with their families, uh, to reconnect with their inner purpose, uh, and, and to reconnect with what really matters. I mean, to me, to enjoy life, I want to have clean skies, clean water. I want to have the ability to get around uh, mobility and get to things I want uh, in, a, in an efficient way, in an effective way. And so this kind of pause on everything where we're not able to get out and do all this is giving people a chance to reevaluate. Do I really need to go into the office five days a week? Could I work a day or two at home? Would that be better for everything? Keep me off the road, keep me home with the family a little more. You can get a lot done when you're not mixing with everybody. You know, I, when I started working from home a few years ago, I was like, I'm getting more done in five hours than I did in 10 hours at the office uh, just because I didn't have all the interruptions. And so I just think it's a great opportunity for people to pause and reflect. And from a personal basis, I think it's time, I think a lot of people are taking this time to kind of take care of themselves a little more, right? Going on diets, exercising, walking more, uh, and also kind of reflecting on the inside, you know, so that we don't end up with a midlife crisis, right? What is my interests and what is my abilities? And that X spot is your destiny, I believe. And so as people start looking at, uh, while they're not on the, on the, um, the spinning wheel as much and they pulled off, people are taking time to think and reflect and read and say, you know what, maybe this isn't what I wanted to be doing long-term. I'm really interested in this. So I'm going to start this as a hobby right now while I've got some time. Maybe I can figure out a way to turn that in and monetize that. And so I encourage those who are on the phone to think about that and to expand your portfolio of what you're doing right now and think beyond that. I mean, I'm doing that, right? So I just wrote this book. It came out, uh, The Future of Public Transportation. Uh, but I had an idea. While we were on this you know, shutdown, I should do a children's book. And so you know, I'm just thinking outside the box. I've got six kids and five grandchildren. And uh, I thought they would love – No, there's no book out there in the market right now for, for kids to kind of see how public transportation actually has helped society over the last 200 years. Everybody has an idea like that. Right? Maybe you want to learn to play an instrument. Maybe you want to um, you know, write your own book. This is a time for us, I think, to push, pause, reflect, and reorient slightly so that when we come out of this, we can be fully aligned internally. And the power that comes from internal alignment in your, in your life, where you're living uh, what you believe on the inside, I, um, and you can come out of this kind of now practicing it more, I think will make us all more powerful when we come out of this. Well, that's a great point. Uh, in your book, you talk about changing business models, uh, how transportation might look in the future, a blend of old models and traditional services with new technology and new models that are coming to market. As we hit this pause button and rethink what's possible, what, what do you think those business models and that structure of how we move people around cities is gonna look like you know, coming out of COVID-19? Excellent. Really good. So um, it's definitely changing. It was already in the process of changing. I was uh, moderating a panel in Las Vegas uh, two months ago or three months ago now uh, called Go NV, Go Nevada. And it was a look at what the future is going to bring to the whole state of Nevada. And the Secretary of Transportation was there and you know, MJ and, and um, the, uh, Maynard, the head of RTC, and Tina Quigley, the former head. And we were just looking at new models. We had on my panel that I was moderating was Uber Air. 
right? And a guy from the Unmanned Drone Society of Nevada or something like that. And, you know, another group of Hyperloop. They were all on this panel. That's what's happening. And that's not going to change. These new models are all being driven by private sector initiatives. And so public transit agencies uh, are changing their approach and are doing what Nat Ford called, you know, we become the mobility aggregators. So we know that we provide mass transit, you know, the six modes I talked about, but we're also now taking in some of these other modes and putting them on a mobility as a service app or just working with them in order to make sure that we're all in alignment so that we're not competing necessarily with each other. So we don't have a Hyperloop competing with the subway. So we don't have, um, you know, uh, Uber competing with paratransit, that we're actually working together and LinkedIn. Uh, there's enough resources and the pie is big enough where we can all work together. My good friend, Dimitri Vanjagoff, uh, recently left my company and went to Uber to help them with their public transportation efforts. And so I see these models, the private and the public sector really working together, uh, just like they've been doing with P3s, right? The public-private partnerships for big capital construction projects. When I was at MTA, I was leading the largest P3 in America called the Purple Line. It was a $5.3 billion construction of a 16-mile light rail line connecting up with WMATA. And that's the new model. Uh, getting the private sector in to work with the public sector, maybe even have some skin in the game with some uh, investment so that they have a long-term investment, 10, 20, even 30-year capital investment to design, build, operate, maintain, and finance these big capital projects. And I think we could see the same thing happening with operating modes. Uh, so I'm very excited that I believe that within two or three years, I'm going to be able to push a button on my phone and call an unmanned drone to my front yard. I'm going to be able to walk out of my house here on the eastern shore of Maryland, get in it, and it's going to drop me off on the roof of the FTA building in downtown Washington, D.C. And, you know, it might cost me $90, but you know what? When I add in the cost of, uh, you know, driving my car over there, parking it for the day, and driving back and being three hours in traffic, uh, it might be worth it to me. And then the more people that use that, the lower the cost will go, just like you remember when microwaves came out. You know, they were $600. Now you can get it for $60 or even less. And so the, it's the, you know, it's how markets work. And so I think that we're going to see air travel and underground hyperloop travel as real things within this decade. Uh, and we're going to be, you know, I'm young enough. All of, you, all of you I'm looking at are young enough. We're going to be experiencing this ourselves. Uh, and so these new models, public transit agencies would be wise to work with them and not against them, uh, and to bring them into this public mobility. That's why we're changing the whole, you know, lingo, the, um, the nomenclature we use. It's not necessarily called mass transit anymore, or even public transportation. That's not the only nomenclature used. Now it's mobility, right? Because it's all kinds of options. We've got some other audience uh, questions coming in. Uh, I want to open it up for Daniel, uh, who has a question for you, Paul. Yes, hi. Uh, I was wondering specifically about the access to information people have. A lot of the measures that you propose add peace of mind by, you know, cleaning and removing congregation areas by the, the fare box. Something that's very popular in the surveillance space today are thermal cameras. Um, they, they're used to find if someone has a fever, things like that there might be some other AI analytic things that might be helpful. Do you think that that has an effect on people's peace of mind to get back to public transit? Or is that something, you know, pie in the sky, theoretical, interesting? Yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. Thank you for that. Uh, yes, and I address this in the book about, um, you know, let's start with artificial intelligence, right? That's already being used right now, effectively, 
to manage bus maintenance. So you can determine based on, um, based on past information, the algorithms can determine when that bus needs to come back into the shop for maintenance. When the temperature of the, you know, and the core engine gets to this, it's gonna break down within 30 minutes on average. So get that vehicle back so we don't have a breakdown. Uh, so artificial intelligence is being used. Already passenger counters on the top of buses, APCs, automatic passenger counters. When you walk in the bus, it's seeing you come in and seeing you come out. A lot of people don't know that, you know, it's a laser fed item. So it wouldn't be that far of a stretch to say, let's also add infrared to that and test the temperature of each person coming on the bus. And if it's over 101, we're going to say to that person, can you see that happening? I mean, I can see that coming out of this. One of those, one of those technology tools you mentioned to say, you know what, uh, we'll send you an individualized um, uh, autonomous vehicle to your house to make sure you get where you're going, where you won't have to interact with anybody, but you really need to not be on the bus with 40 other people. So yes, uh, I don't think that's too utopian to see that coming in the next year or two. The technology already exists and it just, it takes somebody with the guts to say, you know what, uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And so we're going we're gonna to make sure that we keep everybody on this bus safe. Really good question. Paul, that brings up an interesting point. So we're used to a very tactile where we're touching things or, you know, fare boxes or ticket kiosks and what have you. Uh, where do you see new adaptations of technology coming to the marketplace that are clean, safe, digital and perhaps a lot more efficient for the transit agencies for the riders I, I, kind of similar to the question i was just asked what, what what kind of new adaptations do you see coming out i think the biggest one would be on fare collection so you know it's like an rfid type technology where if your phone has an app active when you walk on the vehicle it just takes your it it's just like the apple stores now they have certain stores where you can go in and you don't have to actually interact with any um checkout counter it, it is tracking everything, you know, you're tapping and going and you're putting into your cart and you walk out with it and it just, it knows who you are based on the fact that you had an app and you had it open and it charges your account. So I can see that it, the technology already exists. Mm -hmm. um, it's existed for years. Matt Cole and I talked about this five years ago, uh, the former CEO of Cubic, that, um, you know, you can have RFID style technology. Shashi Verma and I were talking about it uh, five years ago in London where especially people with disabilities, like you mentioned earlier, or they not be, might not be able to reach in their pocket and pull out a card or whatever, just having an account-based system where the, it recognizes them based on the signal that's coming from their phone or some device. Uh, when they get on the vehicle, it takes the dollar from their account and it recognizes they're on the vehicle and they don't have to actually interact with anybody. So I think that's obviously one of the next steps that will be happening pretty quickly. I think that people are gonna say, you know what? Let's move to a no-touch situation just like bathrooms and airports have, right? So now you go into an airport, you don't have to touch anything in the bathroom. The sinks, you know, you put your hand that gets the water, the, the towels and the soap uh, and the flush on the toilet, you don't touch anything, right? Mm -hmm. So they've already figured that out 10 years ago. I can see that now coming to transit. We've got a question from Mark uh, on their audience as well. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, thank you. So Paul, uh, considering all this new technology and, and uh, what's going on in, in today's society, I've been listening to a lot of the news reports, Dr. Fauci and, and some of those other uh, experts. Um, in order to, to move us forward, what's your take on where um, privacy and security is going to go? Right now, we're putting a lot of effort into securing the private sector 
government, uh, even with the uh, millions and billions of dollars that they spend, hasn't hasn't necessarily been nearly as effective as some of the private sector people. Um, what's your what's your take on on how many rights we're going to have to give up in order to move forward? Wow, amazing, Mark. Yeah, I mean, we talked about 9-11, right? So we entered a permanent surveillance state, in my opinion, after 9-11, right? So people, you know, there's an old saying, right? Those who would give up their liberty for a little security deserve neither. I forget who said that. One of our founding fathers, I think, said that. So at heart, I'm a little bit of a libertarian. So I'm very concerned about our loss of liberties uh, that come from government surveillance and, you know, I've been in government most of my career, uh, but I'm still concerned about that. I think the people, you know, we are the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I think that's still true. And so I am concerned, but I do believe that we will lose some of our freedoms as a result of the response to this pandemic. I mean, I just read this morning, you know, government agencies are going to be tracking people now who have, um, that's it. Who have, uh, you know, who've tested positive. Somebody told me on the phone this morning that was calling me from Vancouver that the government there announced yesterday in Canada that they may, with people travel into their territory from outside, they may even track some type of tracking device on their phone to make sure that they are self uh, isolating for 14 days. So um, the, the the big brother 1984 style uh, observation. Now I think we take the next step in that. And I think that, um, you know, now flip the coin on that. So I, I as I mentioned, I used to work at MTA in Baltimore and, and one of our, uh, one of the places we served was National Security Administration, NSA. We had buses there uh, and, and, you know, the drivers, we, we funded an agency, local agency that had buses go on their campus there in uh, Fort Meade, Maryland in that area. And so they offered me to take a tour of NSA and I thought, oh, this would be great. You know, I'd love to see all this stuff. And so, but before I could take the tour, they took all 10 of my fingerprints. <laughs> I said, I hate to give the NSA 10 fingerprints, you know, all everything. And then the tour was crappy. I mean, it was a crap tour. We toured the, you know, trash disposal area. They didn't take me into the high secure area. And it was done. I complained about it. They're like, oh, we can't take you in there. That's only like once or twice a year, like if the president or your governor comes. I'm like, I gave you 10 fingers for nothing. And, uh, but you know what? They probably already had them. So my point is a lot of the, what we think we have as uh, it's already been given up, right? You know, the TikToks, the, the, uh, the facial scan that I've already given to um, Snapchat without even thinking about it. Now they have my facial ID, you know, when I'm playing with uh, filters and stuff. And so a lot of the freedoms that we think we have and the freedom from surveillance, it's not really there anyway. I'm not, I'm not being a, uh, you know, kind of a throw up my hands, we'll just give up. But I'm just saying, you know, I think that there is going to be a loss of some freedoms and that the surveillance step, the surveillance state will take another step toward tracking us, uh, you know. But as I said, man, how do you think you get the green or the red line on your Google Maps? <laughs> They're tracking everybody already. They already uh, know uh, everybody, you know. They know whether the road is crowded or not. When I found that out about a year ago, I was like, are you kidding me? So they're tracking my phone, even though I don't have Google Maps on. That's how they know whether the road is full of cars or not. And so, anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and we know that the Googles and the Snapchats, they're, they're, um, they're taking all of that stuff and, and <clears throat> how Facebook's going to be using that, that data. Um, it's a matter of flipping that switch uh, and mentally uh, for the people of this country, as you mentioned, to, to get over the fact that all of the sudden the government has that. I mean, you look at the, out, um, the outlash um, that happened when people found out that um, police departments were using data from Verizon to track them. 
and you take a look at what San Francisco just did and a few other cities, I can't remember all of them, where they just outlawed uh, facial recognition other than in certain circumstances. So um, I agree with you. I, I unfortunately feel like we're going to give up some, some civil liberties. I'm just wondering how, how deep you think it will go and, and whether or not, um, you know, whether or not the government as a whole will be as concerned about the cybersecurity of that data as, as it should be. Yeah, it's a very, very valid concern. I mean, we saw just earlier this year uh, or, or last year, you know, Congress, there was concerns about purchasing trains from China, uh, from certain manufacturers there, right? Because they were afraid that the cameras on them or other technology could be, could be monitored, etc. And um, there was even language written in one of the uh, uh, in legislation about that. So, and that's a foreign government accessing, you know, what's happening here in America, much less our own government. So I think, you know, um, it's a very valid concern, Mark. I think we're all concerned about it. And I think transit, um, I remember like seven years ago, I had a guy come to my office and say, uh, no, it was five, five or six years ago and say, did you know we have smart trash cans now? We can track people that come to the footprint of people that come into your bus shelters simply by having a beacon in your trash can. The trash can can track, it's not going to track them individually and identify them, but it'll say another cell phone signal has come into your shelter. And that'll help you know, do you need to, you know, is it a bus stop with, um, with a shelter? Well, now you know that there are people gathering there at that bus stop and you can track the weather and say, okay, well, they were there during a rainy time and there were seven people. And we have a standard that if, if an average of seven people are there, you know, per 30 minutes that we want to put a shelter there. So that technology of tracking people, even though it's been anonymized, uh, has been in place for a long time in transit agencies. And I think that you're right that now it may not be as anonymized and that's what all of our concern is it's going to be individualized and the the usage of it will be to monitor and track viruses and other things as the next step in, in a tool in the arsenal of people to keep people safe but it will be giving up some freedom thank you we have uh jody barr who's been waiting patiently on the line to ask a question so i want to open up the line for jody to hey joey Hi, Paul. How are you? It's Jody Bear. I was with the RTC formerly, and now I'm back in Columbus with the Columbus Regional Airport Authority. And um, I'm very intrigued by uh, all the sentiments that you're sharing. And as you know, I'm a huge fan of mobility as a service. And my question stems around where do you think, um, I, I feel the public's going to be reluctant to share rides, um, especially given all the hype around um, COVID-19. So I, I, I'm curious for your perspective on that and what shared mobility service providers um, should be considering um, to help garner the trust of, um, of, the, of the public to continue participation in um, shared ride services. So by shared ride, do you mean like on, on the regular bus or are you talking about something else? I, I'm talking even beyond um, like the tra public transit, but even like uh, Uber, Lyft, um, you know, different microtransit um, solutions, yeah. more in that space. Okay. 
Well, I'll talk first about the bus. Uh, so as I mentioned, a lot of transit agencies have reduced the capacity of their buses uh, and said, you know, only 20 people can get on a 40, 40 person bus because we want to keep some distance. Um, some agencies have cut back so dramatically that they're having a backlash, like I mentioned early on the show, where uh, I saw an article in New Jersey the other day and another one at another city uh, where they've cut they've cut the number of vehicles back to match the demand, but they haven't taken into consideration uh, the capacity constraints of these vehicles. And so people are jammed back in again. So cities like Houston and some cities in Canada have actually added vehicles uh, to their heaviest routes during this time to make sure that there can be social distancing. And I think my prescription for transit systems to get people back on board is number one, to say our buses are clean and to prove it, to say we've hired like, like Randy, my friend uh, who runs Austin uh, Cap Metro, Randy Clark is hiring 50 new cleaners, right? So he's putting his money where his mouth is. He's hiring 50 new cleaners. They're going to make sure these vehicles are clean so that people get on. They know that they've been wiped down. I think people will be less likely to grab onto a stanchion, right? Unless they have a glove or something like that on for a while. Uh, and so I think that transit systems need to add vehicles to their heaviest use routes. They need to go to frequency, like what they already were doing. It was one of the biggest trends of 2019, was rebooting your bus network taking people where they want to go today. The second was adding frequency. And the third was reducing friction. It's all covered in my book, The Future of Public Transportation. And uh, reducing friction would mean uh, off-board fare payment. It would be mm -hmm. stopping the slowdown at the fare box. Remember that, um, I don't think I mentioned on this show yet, but when we were in Baltimore, people were using cash at the fare box. We allowed them to purchase a day pass on the bus. So they would go up to the fare box, give the driver $4.10, and then the driver would have to type some stuff in the, in the machine, in the, and it would pop up a ticket. And that took 30 seconds on average. And we averaged out for the whole year, that's 56,000 wasted hours of productivity, slowing our average system miles per hour down by two miles per hour as a result of that. And so you know, that needed to be changed and it needs to be changed. We need to do off-board fare payment, ticket vending machines, point of service devices, tap and go, slowing the, adding bus only lanes, adding transit signal priority. All those things are still critical to get people back on the bus. Opening both doors that allow people to board and disembark the bus from both doors will speed up the speed of the bus dramatically. So now maybe you won't be able to walk faster than you can ride the bus in rush hour in a city. And that's going to get people back on the bus. We need to make it an attractive option for them. Clean it, add enough uh, volume capacity, and slow down the friction, reduce the friction um, uh, of getting on the bus and getting off so it's quick, just like it is on a subway system. You just jump on and you jump off, right? All the fairing is done before you get on the vehicle. We need to be thinking about that. The BRT style routes need to, need to continue to increase in order to get people on those vehicles. When it comes to shared ride vehicles, with personally owned vehicles like Uber and Lyft, there is a concern there, right? You don't know who was on before you, how long has it been since this vehicle's been clean. I've been on some that are dirtier than taxi cabs. And, um, and so I think that's a valid concern that some of these companies are going to have to address. Again, they usually don't have more than one person in the vehicle unless it's your friend uh, or, you know, companion or whatever. Um, so it's not like you're rubbing shoulders right then with somebody else. But I think those are valid concerns. And I've yet to hear personally what the, um, what the real response is to that to make sure that they're, they're, they're clean and, uh, and effective, effectively communicating that to the public. But I have been tuned into it. There may be messages there. Maybe one of you guys on the call, uh, Ian or Chris, if you guys have seen any messaging from TNCs on how they're staying clean and safe? Ian, do you oh, want to uh, on, Chris. Go ahead, Ian. No, I mean, obviously a lot of TNCs have, uh, are not operating currently. Uh, I've seen some uh, sort of like corporate messaging coming out about, obviously, 
cleanliness of vehicles has been uh, people post sort of like showing them uh, cleaning out their vehicles after every ride currently. So obviously it's, it's, it's a change of mindset in, in the approach to obviously the cleanliness of that uh, environment that you're in that's, that's been triggered through, through COVID-19. I mean, it'd be great if that continues after we, uh, you know, have to get past this, this pandemic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's things have to be done to, to, to obviously mitigate that. I was just going to say that I think that uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, we, I, there's been so much great progress made on uh, educating the public about the value to uh, mobility as a service, um, but more importantly, reducing the number of single occupancy vehicles on the road, using more shared ride kind of models, be it public buses or TNCs or whatnot. And I feel like Unfortunately, COVID-19 is going to slow that progress and maybe even see us go take a few steps back before we can go forward um, in terms of getting the public mindset to be ready to embrace um, shared, shared ride services overall. Yep. Unfortunately, I think you may be right, Jody. Yep. It's great to hear from you, by the way. Next time I get up in Ohio, hopefully we can have a cup of coffee once we're back. Yeah, traveling. I like that. And Paul, I have another question unrelated um, to public transportation in the space of buses, but more in the space of air travel. And um, curious about your thoughts on how how you see the impacts of um, COVID-19 in airspace and what maybe we need to be on the lookout for in our industry in terms of the passenger experience and, and helping them um, embrace air travel again, because I think air travel is going to be even slower to go. Hmm. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you had to say on that topic. I think that um, similar as any shared ride service, like we're talking about for buses, the messaging needs to be, you know, the cleanliness, the HEPA filters, whatever uh, on the air to keep, you know, I think people don't really understand how is the air recirculated on an airplane? Uh, that's a concern people have. And I don't know that I've, you know, I fly all the time and I've never really been clear on that. Are we getting fresh air from the outside of the airplane or is this all recirculated air? I mean, that's a concern, right? Uh, I don't want to have to wear yeah. a face mask for a four hour flight. That's very, you know, uncomfortable and blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I might do it for a half hour or, or hour commuter plane. But so I think that airlines need to be uh, more transparent about um, the cleanliness and what's happening inside the vehicle. I'm happy to see from a frequent flyer perspective, like Marriott came out yesterday and said, we're gonna extend your points uh, you know, for another year. I've seen some airlines send me the same messaging. So I think a way to get people back on the frequent flyers is to make sure they, they really service them well on the points and the, uh, the gamification kind of stuff that, was a, that kept a lot of people like loyal to their airline or their particular hotel. I think you know, how people treat their employees and their customers is gonna have a lot to do with whether people get back on those vehicles. And so the messaging that comes out to them I never knew I wanted to hear from every company that I'd ever been on their mailing list to tell me how they're handling COVID-19. But I certainly <laughs> want to hear from the airlines and from the airports. How are you going to keep my experience safe and clean? Like I mentioned, airports have done this a long time ago, right? They've gone to almost a touch-free environment. The only thing you have to touch is the screen where you're you know, self-checking yourself in. And maybe they'll figure out a way to keep them clean. I noticed the other day when I was at the Lowe's store getting something, they had a guy standing right there when I was done after touching the screen, spraying it, wiping it down in between every person. I don't know if we can go that far, but there needs to be something like that uh, yeah. to help people feel safer. 
to that yeah, point, dude, Paul, just to I, quickly, I, Oh, I'm just going to say, I have a, a good friend neighbor who's an Uber driver, and she was saying that she basically makes a point to open the door for the passenger, wipe down the seats and everything inside the vehicle before they get on and get out. And just that kind of visual reassurance that they're taking the right step, she says, is kind of helping to reduce a little bit of the anxiety. That yep. feeling. That's good. You know, something else just simple, but um, the other day we went through a, a drive through and um, to get some food and the whole process was touch-free, which I thought was amazing, right? So there was somebody standing there to take my order when I was in the drive through line. And then uh, I went up and they called our name and she had gloves on and she put the credit card machine up to me and I could swipe my own card. She didn't touch my card, I didn't touch the machine. She just put it into the window of the car, I swiped. And then we went to the window and they handed me my bag of food and they had gloves on. And I think that kind of thing is gonna continue for a while. I think people are gonna, you know, you know, like I love it that in Canada and in Europe, they don't take your credit card back to the rest, you know, like in America, you know, most places you go, and this is a little far afield what we're talking about, but it's, it's related. You go to a nice restaurant, they take your credit card, they're gone for five minutes. What the heck, man? What is going on here? I like it where they bring you the clown credit card. It, Paul, the clown in it, yeah. yeah, they bring the credit card machine to the table. Let me swipe it. I keep the card in my hand. You hold the machine. I don't have to touch anything. We're going to be, I think, a much more concerned about cleanliness going forward. And it'll help, I think, even the, you know, the natural uh, spread of other viruses. I just read yesterday that here in the U.S., they dropped their projections down to 60,000 deaths for this year for COVID in the U.S. And then I looked at the stats. It said it in the article. The stats for death for flu, for regular flu every year, is between 30 and 60,000. So right now, it's about the same as it is for regular flu. It's still tragic, right? Every death is tragic. Oh, but the God. point is, this whole, but the, the number of regular flu cases is evidently down from what it has been in past years. And I think it's due to the fact that we are practicing a little more, you know, social distancing, cleanliness. People are just going to be more aware of that. And they're not going to be, you know, sneezing out into a crowd or touching everything. I think we're going to move to a much more high-tech, low-touch environment across the board, whether it's in restaurants, on airplanes, on transit, riding a TNC, uh, at the grocery store, it's all going to become a little more sanitary, which isn't a bad thing. Yep. We're nearly at the top of the hour. Uh, Paul, I want to thank you on behalf of Ian, Zach, Dan, and myself for joining us this morning. Uh, fantastic discussion. Uh, for those who have tuned in, if you haven't had a chance to get a copy of Paul's book, The Future of Public Transportation, it's a great read, highly recommend it. And uh, we, we're thrilled to have you with us this morning, Paul, and, and have your insights. It's been really helpful. Um, I do also want to just briefly mention that we'll be having our next uh, Coffee Talk Roundtable uh, scheduled for April 23rd at uh, 8.30 in the morning Pacific time. And we're thrilled to be having uh, Alyssa Rodriguez, who will be joining us. She's the International Vice President for the Institution of Transportation Engineers. And so she'll be joining us on our next uh, Coffee Talk Roundtable. And uh, we'll be posting this on social media so people have access to the login details. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, thank you again, Paul, and for everybody who joined us this morning. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, guys. It was great. Enjoyed it. And great format. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff we need to be doing. It was fun. Indeed. Great. Yeah. And, and uh, we look forward to having you join our next one. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, be safe and stay thank healthy. Thank you. Hey, hey Jody. What, real quick, Jody, this is Tina Quigley. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm get, you still have your same cell phone, right? I do. 
Okay, I'm gonna give you a call. One of the things that I'd like to talk okay. about, I know this is done, but hey, Chris and 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 um, to the extent that we can start to have a conversation about how transit agencies are starting to collaborate with other agencies as well, public health, urban planning, um, in terms of sharing data. I'd love to learn from other cities, and that's what I'll talk to Jody about, um, as to how we're starting to see cross-agency data sharing for the sake of solving some social issues or addressing social issues. Great you point, Tina. Yeah. We'll definitely look at that for the next one. Yeah, Tina, okay. let me, let me Thanks, suggest guys. you talk to, to, um, to Steve, the CEO of, uh, of Nashville. Uh, he's really big on that. Um, and uh, I just did a show with him about, about how he's combining with everybody uh, in his city, Steve Bland. And if you need his contact info, just let me know. All right. I think that's a wrap for this morning. Thanks, everybody guys. have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank, Thank you for joining us.